Right, we're looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. Right, and of course the reason Sam gets confused is because the modern name of the city which uh, uh, Paul was writing to is Thessalonica, and so he tries putting an extra K in uh, because he's too modern. Uh, so an old person like me uh, copes a bit better with that, I think. It's all right, let's uh, scrap that one. Right. Living to please, we're looking at living ready, and the passage I have today is chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, which is quite a long passage. When I've been preparing for this, I've looked at the way different people uh, talk about this passage. And when you look at the way people talk about the passage, they split it up into sections and they show, you know, a nice logical progression of what Paul's doing. The interesting thing is, virtually every commentator does it differently and is picking out different things. And when I was looking at it, I thought, yeah, I can see where these people are getting this from, but there's more to it than that. It's not really what getting at here. So you're not going to get a nice clear-cut sermon with three points taking you from the first part to the second in a nice logical progression. Because Paul's not writing that kind of letter at this point. It's not that Paul hasn't thought out what he believes and what he's teaching the churches. When we look at his history, he had about 10 years before he started on his missionary journeys, working out what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah, what it meant in terms of the Old Testament, what it meant in terms of the Greek and Roman culture of that time. I did think, uh, I want to give, remind us of the historical background, and I got that far with my notes for it, and I thought, well, even then I'm not really touching on it. So, can I encourage you, if you haven't done so already, read the bit in Acts chapter 16 onwards to see what Paul's doing at this time. I know Sam read part of that when we started. Read through the whole letter as a letter. Our danger is that we read verses or parts of verses, looking for something which is going to speak to our situation now. But just a little bit of the context. Paul had arrived in Europe, in the country we now call Greece, at Philippi. He had spent maybe a few months there, He'd then been beaten by the authorities, stuck in prison. There'd been an earthquake sufficiently severe to make the doors come off their hinges. He's then been hurried out of town by the magistrates, who probably now think they've got something a bit more on their hands to deal with clearing up after an earthquake than dealing with this preacher. They, they want to get rid of him quickly. He ends up in Thessalonica where he's writing to. 
We don't know how long he stayed there. We know he stayed at least three weeks. He probably stayed at least two months. He might have stayed six months, probably no more. But he's really got involved with these people. He's arrived a beaten wreck. And yet they accepted him. And he's taught them the gospel. Some of which we've been singing already today. But then, he doesn't get beaten up this time. But he has to be rushed out of Thessalonica to protect the people who he's staying with. He gets put, goes down to the next city, Berea, where he's welcomed. We don't know how long he stays there, a few weeks, a couple of months. He gets move, has to move out of there before it get, gets too difficult for him and the new church. He ends up in Athens. When he left Thessalonica, he left Timothy behind to help them. When he's in Athens, we discover in the next chapter of uh, this letter, Timothy arrives from Athens, sorry, from Thessalonica to where Paul now is in Athens with a report of how the church is getting on. Having got that report, Paul is so concerned for this church in Thessalonica, he sends Timothy back to see how things are going on. Paul, by this time, has been on trial in Athens, has to leave Athens quickly, bit of a pattern here, and ends up in Corinth, where actually he stays for about a couple of years. And while he's in Corinth, Timothy comes back with a report from this church in Thessalonica. And this letter we're reading is Paul's immediate response back to the church. Paul, we're not reading, Paul's not writing this as a theological set piece. He's writing to people he cares for who are going through a difficult time, partly because he's been there, and he cares that they grow up in the faith, which he's only really been able to do a little bit of teaching to begin with. Okay, he left Timothy, who knows what he, how he teaches, to do a bit more. But he's, these are people he cares for. And so as we read this, Paul starts on a bit of a theme and then he's sort of going off on a bit more and then he's coming back. He's re reinforcing what he's saying. There's a lot of unspoken stuff here which they know because he's been there so he doesn't have to say all the detail. So we're sort of, we are just looking in on part of a relationship of what's happening. So that's the way, we need to be looking at it that way as we read it. So, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 
2 from verse 1, it should be on the screen as I read as well. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But although we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. For our appeal does not spring for error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, although we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you now know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, which calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank constantly for God. Sorry, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you, you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Lord, I ask that as we look at these words in your scriptures, that you would speak to us now, but also that you would be placing things deep in our hearts, so that in the future we will have things to draw on from your word, to in situations we might not expect. But we thank you, Lord, you speak to us day by day, moment by moment, from your word. Amen. We're not sure, but it looks as if after Paul's left Thessalonica, people have come along and started making comments about his motives, about what he had said. But we notice when Paul's talking here, He's saying he didn't use flattery. He didn't hide any of the difficult bits of the gospel. He didn't just come 
with the bits which he thought would suit the Thessalonians, help them to accept the gospel, and miss out the bits which would be difficult. Also, he says that they didn't come with a pretext for greed. The Thessalonians know he gave them the whole gospel. And he says, you know that, because they heard it. They can't totally know whether what his other motives were, whether he had motives of greed or not. But God does. And they'd have a pretty good idea anyway from just seeing the way he behaved. But as I've said already, the context of all this happening is persecution. Paul has arrived beaten. He would, he would be recovering from his injuries. We discover that in the later part of this passage that they as a church are now being persecuted as well. So Paul is not hiding from these Christians, these young Christians, that following him is likely to lead to persecution. Now, in our country at this time, the probability of any serious persecution for us is low. The main risk of persecution in this country is to Christians who've come from a Muslim background. But, that risk is always there. And so we need to understand about it. Because if we're not aware that that risk of persecution is there, if it does come, how do we respond? Does it look as if the gospel doesn't work because we're having difficulties? But Paul's saying in this passage that even though persecution has come, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not Lord. We've got this thing that one of the things which Paul talks about frequently when he's talking about the gospel is Jesus has come as king. We were singing that earlier. He is the Lord. One thing I've noticed about persecution is to a large extent, certainly where it impacts on us, it usually appears to be by mistake. It seems to happen because people have got things wrong. Now, I've only been attacked physically twice in relatively minor ways for being a Christian. The first time is because the people who beat me up thought I belonged to a different church than the one I did actually belong to. Now, in some ways, as I think Paul finds here, if you know you're being persecuted for what you've done, it's relatively easy to deal with. 
You know, because you know that followers of Jesus could get attacked. When you get persecuted for something you haven't done, it's harder to deal with. Because you feel, well, that, that's not right. You know, it's, it's a misunderstanding. But that actually happened to Paul. When we look at why he, the accusation against him when he left Philippi, the accusation was he was trying to get Romans to follow Jewish customs, which wasn't legal for them to do. Although that's a dubious statement in itself, but at all sorts of levels. But that was the accusation. When he was chucked out of Thessalonica, the accusation was he was saying that there's another king other than Caesar, and he was almost, you know, implication is trying to get a revolution going against Caesar. So when persecution comes, often it's because of what we actually believe or say is twisted, misunderstood taken totally out of context or whatever. But it doesn't mean it won't happen, but we need to be prepared. And that is something which uh, doesn't mean the gospel isn't going forward. In fact, it probably means more than anything else that it's actually having an impact. Sometimes things can get deeper. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, which is written possibly up to 10 years later than the letter we're now reading, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's probably written referring to an imprisonment Paul probably had in Ephesus. We've got no written account of it, but it's the only way really of making sense of the letters he writes at that period of time and how he responds. You know, in this letter, Paul is not, if you like, as cheerful after the persecution, as he was at this time in Thessalonica. Something's happened to really get him down and depressed. Whether it's people he thought he could trust on that have abandoned him, or whatever. But the point is, no matter how abandoned we might feel, how depressed we might feel in our Christian walk, God is still with us. That might be linked to persecution, it might not. But Paul is saying in his letters to these churches, you can trust God to look after you. Even when you're in the situations when it looks like things are so bad they can't get worse and you're probably going to end up dying soon anyway. God can still, is still in control and still looking after you.
when we look at things like this, it's easy to look at it as if, you know, this is sort of hard ideas to take on board and it seems very impersonal. So it's important as we're reading this passage to see what other sorts of phrases Paul is throwing into it. So talking about his time with them, in verse 7, he talks about they were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. In verse 11, he talks, For you know how like a father with his children, we exalted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And then in verse 14, he talks about, For you brothers became imitators. He's not teaching this as some sort of impersonal teacher trying to get facts over. He's teaching it as somebody who's bringing up members of his family. Whatever you might think of the roles of mothers and fathers and whatever they might be different now from the period we're talking about when he was writing, he's covering a whole range of different styles, a whole range of different emotions. At a minimum, he's talking about starting with them, if you like, when they're extremely young Christians, and encouraging them to grow up in their faith. To the stage that when he's talking about brothers, he's, you know, you've grown to this, you know, I'm no longer thinking of you as children who I'm bringing up. You are now, you know, you're brothers. The relationship's changing and developing and growing. It's coming out of relationship. One of the things Paul taught about as part of his basic gospel is that under the lordship of Jesus, the old barriers have been broken down. The barriers between slaves and free. The barriers between Gentile and Jew. And that goes beyond race, because again, if we look, not so much in this letter, although I think there'll be a reference a bit later, but particularly in Romans and Corinthians, where he's talking about sexual ethics, that is as much a racial differentiation between the Gentiles and the Jews as it was an ethical one. And what Paul talks about there is still very relevant to the modern world. Over the last fortnight, I've picked up quite a bit on uh, the Twitter accounts I follow, particularly from the States, on 
issues to do with sexual ethics and race. Now, one of the tweets, uh, I think, quoted John Piper. I haven't checked back the reference. Uh, I don't know if it is one of his references or he was quoting somebody else, but I've seen similar things as well. Now, in the church context in the States at the moment, you'll get some churches which will be very strong on teaching about sexual ethics and what that means in terms of homosexuality and all the other issues involved there, but won't touch the issues of race and social justice. While other groups of Christians will be very hot on the issues of race and social justice, but won't touch sexual ethics. And the point, whether it's John Piper or somebody else or other people, is probably several have made. Actually, if we're being true to the gospel, we've got to do both. You can't do one and not the other. And if you do one and not the other, it's because you are worried about what the people in your congregation think and you're sticking to the things which are socially acceptable within your congregation rather than what the gospel implies. And something which challenged me, because it's easy for us to look at what happens in the States and say we're better than them, but actually we're not. The issues that might be nuanced differently, but they're still there. And they were there at the time when Paul was writing. You know, these are not things which have changed. The exact details might change a little bit from generation to generation, but the basic issues don't. And the thing which struck me when I was thinking about this is if we're not finding things in the gospel which make us uncomfortable, we're at risk of reading the gospel only within our own social and cultural conditions. It's easy looking in the past to know what were the, what are the right things to do. It's not easy in the present. So, for example, I think it was 1942, but it could be one year either way, Bishop George Bell of Chichester flew to Sweden to meet with Christian leaders from Germany during the middle of the Second World War to see about, you know, was, were there any options for peace between the countries. He also spoke out very strongly against the indiscriminate bombing of German cities by the Allied Air Forces, which did not make him a popular person at that time, or necessarily periods after the war either. But he whether you agree with what he did or not, he was responding 
to what he saw in the Christian gospel about the need for peace and for breaking down barriers. If you've been following, I, only, I pick up various bits in the news, so I wouldn't like to claim I've got a total balanced opinion on this, but I believe earlier this week, some Christian leaders from this country were in Syria, meeting Christian leaders there, meeting politicians there. Some of them have had a lot of stick for doing that, from commentators and politicians in this country. I think a government spokesman commented on it being not very helpful in a very English way. Whether that's right to do or not, again, very difficult to judge. But, we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to break down barriers. And somebody who responded to, as one person who responded to some of these negative comments said, if you were a Syriac Orthodox Christian in Syria, would you prefer to be in an area controlled by uh, the Assad regime? Or would you prefer to be in an area controlled by the Al-Nusra Front? And most of our Christians and brothers in Syria support the Assad regime. It's not perfect by any means. It's imperfect by a massive number of means. But it's very hard for us here to judge the situation of other people. But take Paul's time. The Roman rulers at about the time we're talking about in succession would have been Caligula, Claudius and Nero. Not exactly uh, the best three Roman emperors going. But he called on the people to pray for their leaders. That they would have peace. So, we too need to be prepared to pray for our leaders in this situation. I know I've got slightly off the passage here, but if we're going to follow the whole gospel, which is what Paul is talking about, it impacts in our lives. Theology, just talking intellectually about Christianity, working out what Paul's theology might be on different issues doesn't threaten anyone won't cause any persecution but if following Jesus as king leads us to change our actions that can have consequences And we need to be prepared for that. As in verse 14, 
Paul says, as you brothers become imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Jews. When the Bible talks about the Jews in these contexts, it means the Jewish leaders rather than the sort of whole ethnic group. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So the question is, are we going to be people who live our lives which displease God? Or are we, as we have in verse 4, are we going to be people who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man, to, but to please God who tests our hearts? So, can I ask that we, as a people, as a church, seek to be people who please God? Which means we need to be clear about what the truth of the gospel is in terms of the salvation which comes through Jesus only, but also need to be people who work it out in our lives. And I know I've said several times before, as we sort out one issue in our lives, God tends to then give us another issue to sort through. But let us become, be people who are willing to let God change us. Willing to let God challenge the unspoken cultural assumptions we might have about people. So that we become a church which reflects his diversity and his glory. And a church which is not afraid to speak out when actions and words spoken are not in line with the gospel and the changes that should bring. Whether that makes us popular as leaders or as a church. It's more important to be people who are true to God, true to his gospel. Mm-hmm.